0: Yeah, as most of you know, we've been going through a series for many Sundays, uh, Bob entitled Ancient Stories and Contemporary Truths. Looking through, just kind of walking through the stories, main stories in the Bible, and thinking about how they apply to us today. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Bob told me that the story that'd be falling to me is the story of Saul. And I was kind of excited about that. I have kind of a love hate relationship with the story of Saul. The thing I don't like about the story of Saul is I feel this uncomfortable connection to him in some ways. Things about him that I wish I didn't connect to, but that I do. Saul's kind of an insecure guy, it seems, as you read through this story. Uh, at times, doesn't seem too comfortable in his own skin, and I can relate to that. And, and Saul was a guy who seemed to fear often being less than what the people around him wanted him to be. He had a real fear of that, of coming up short, in what the people expected or wanted from him. Uh, and I, like most pastors, I think could say that I understand that feeling. Many times I wonder, I think about who in the world am I to be someone who stands before you and, and preaches the Word of God to you? Who in the world am I to be somebody who, who tries to lead people in spiritual things, Is a teacher, Is a counselor of others? Uh, I sure know people that are more mature spiritually. I know people here that are. I know people that are better fathers and better husbands. I know people who are more knowledgeable of Scripture than I am. And so again, the question often comes to me, who in the world am I to be the one in this role? Why in the world should I be in it? And when I read the story of Saul, I find a guy who had some of those same struggles. But what I love about the story of Saul is when I go to the story of Saul, I find some guidance in how to deal with those struggles. Maybe that Saul didn't always follow the guidance, but I find some instruction in maybe how to face that inadequacy at times or those fears. Now, last week, Dan did a great job of kind of setting this up. He told you about why Saul was chosen as king, because the people of Israel had been demanding a king. They wanted a king because they were surrounded by several nations, and these nations around the nation of Israel were powerful nations who in many ways have been impressing them and been a real difficulty to them. And these nations had these powerful kings. They had kings that that clearly looked powerful. They had all the things that kind of were signs of power. They had wealth, and they had armies around them, and they had their big palaces, their places they lived. They were impressive people in the way they led. And you could look at them, and you could see power. And the people of Israel said, we want that. We want somebody that when we look at, we feel safe. Because they look powerful. They look like the one who's going to fight our battles for us and protect us and provide for us. Now, God had always provided for them. He'd always provided the leadership they needed, the people who would guide them and and direct them, that they would be the conduit through which God would be their king and would guide them. But when they looked at those prophets and those judges, maybe they didn't see the signs of power that they wanted to see. Maybe they weren't impressive in the ways they wanted them to be impressive. You couldn't just look at them and know there's the guy that I can depend on that's going to keep me safe. They couldn't see the God often who was standing behind them and who was empowering them. They wanted somebody they could see and touch and know that the power was there. So they wanted a king. Well the story of Saul is one where we meet this guy, this guy Saul. And, and he seems to have those kind of things. He's a pretty impressive guy. Saul we're told comes from a fairly wealthy family. Um, pretty well-respected family. Um, Saul was an impressive guy because it said he was a head taller than anyone else in the whole nation of Israel. This is a big giant of a guy. Also a handsome guy. good-looking guy. If, if they had a Mr. Israel contest, Saul wins hands down. He's the guy. And so if you looked at him, you thought that's the kind of guy we want to lead us. We could have confidence in that kind of guy. And the story starts out in 1 Samuel chapter 9 telling us about him. And what we start out in the story is that he's sent out by his father with one of the servants to go find some lost donkeys. And as the story goes on, they search for these lost donkeys, and they can't find them, and the servant finally suggests, well, I know there's a prophet in the area, let's go talk to him, because maybe he can direct us to them, help us find them. And they go find this prophet, the seer as he's called, and it turns out it's Samuel. And Samuel lets them know, oh, the donkeys have actually already been found, you're They're back home with your father. But Samuel tells him, as God has instructed him to do, that actually, though, Saul, you're going to be the leader of Israel. You're the one God has chosen for that role. And Saul's first response, and I don't think it's a strange response, is, what in the world? Why me? I'm from from the smallest tribe, this insignificant little tribe of Benjamin in the nation of Israel. Why in the world me? All he saw, again, from the very first was his shortcomings – and, and again, I don't think it's strange. I'd be the same. You know, who in the world am I to be the leader of all of Israel? And Saul tells him to stay the night. And I mean, Samuel tells him to stay the night. And the next morning, Saul is anointed as king over Israel. But it's just a private ceremony, just Samuel and Saul. And Saul again, and I think it's strange that he's still not sure. What in the world? This guy's telling me I'm going to be the next leader of Israel. Why in the world should I believe him? And, and God gives him the proof he needs that he is actually the one chosen by God. Samuel tells him, you're going to go on this little journey and you're going to have these very clear signs that are going to come from God that God's in this, that God's the one who chose you. And he tells him these three signs, here's exactly what's going to happen as you're on this little journey. And so Saul goes off and things happen exactly as Samuel said they would happen. So again, he's given these clear evidence that God is in this. God is the one behind this and who is choosing him to be king. The final sign is he he gets back home near his home in Gibeah. um, He's going to find this group of prophets coming down. And this group of prophets is going to be prophesying and playing musical instruments, making music. And he says, when you see them, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you in power. And you're going to be changed. Internally, he's going to. Not only externally is he going to see these signs. Internally, he's going to be given a sign that he is the one chosen by God. God is going to change him, and he's going to prophesy, and he does. Matter of fact, to the point that all the people around him who knew him in his hometown are saying, who in the world is this guy? Has God made Saul a prophet now? Is that what's going on? So again, everybody recognized something had happened, something had changed, and surely Saul understood that. He's seen these signs. Something has changed within him. The power of God has come upon him. But then the very next story is he's home. His uncle comes up, and ask him what's happened on this trip that he took to look for the donkeys. And he tells him about seeing Samuel and Samuel telling him that donkeys came home. And guess what he leaves out of the story? Doesn't mention a word about being chosen king. Doesn't mention a word about the power of God coming upon him and changing his heart. All that gets left out. He's silent in his report about those parts. Well, Samuel pulls the whole nation of Israel together because now it's time. Saul has been shown he's the choice Now it's time to present him to the whole nation. So Samuel draws everyone together and he's ready to present Saul, the next king, the king you have wanted that God graciously and mercifully has provided for you. Even though you wanted a king out of rebellion, God chose a king for you, his man for you. The kind of man you want, but also the kind of man that God can use to do what needs to be done. He chooses him. He goes to present him, and and Samuel goes through this whole process to kind of narrow down and choose who's going to be this king to show them who God chose. And he finally gets to Saul, and he wants to present Saul, and Saul's nowhere to be found. And this big giant of a guy is somewhere hiding amidst a bunch of baggage of the people who have come here. And God directs Samuel to him, reveals where he's hiding, and and Samuel has to call him out from hiding to finally present him before the people as, as the one that God has chosen your king. Now, now think about this story. He's been placed in this remarkable role. Instead of seeing this as kind of a sign of, of God being with him and an affirmation of himself, at every turn he kind of avoids the role, doesn't he? Doesn't want to tell people about it, kind of wants to hide from it, doesn't want to be seen, but Saul presents him, tells him he's the one. And as he's presented to the people, You know, most people accept it, but there's a little group of troublemakers who start kind of questioning it. You know, who in the world is this guy to be our king? We don't know that he should, you know, grew up with this guy. Who is he? And Saul again is silent, doesn't say a word. This guy who is so impressive when you look at him, who has these remarkable gifts, this guy who has had these remarkable signs that God is in this, God has chosen him, he's the one that God wants to do this external signs, internal signs. This one has gone through this whole process to be presented to the people. At every turn, he kind of avoids the rule. Doesn't, for some reason, grab onto it and really believe that he's the one that should be doing it. Maybe he wants to hide from it a little bit. One other thing I should have said, that at the end of these signs that um, Samuel had sent him out to see, there was one command that was given to him. It's just kind of dropped in there, and it'll be important later on. But one thing he's told is that after all these things have happened, after you see all these signs, that you're to then go down to Gilgal. And at Gilgal, wait there seven days. And after seven days, Samuel says, I will come to you and I will make the offerings. That's, that's the one clear command you have after all this happens. That's all you have to do. Okay? Just do that. Whatever your hand's find to do once God's power is on you, go ahead and do it. But this is the one clear command you have. Go down to Gilgal, wait seven days, I'll come and make the offerings to God. You know, as I, as I listen to the story of Saul, I think, why in the world did this guy not embrace the role he was given? It was clear that he has been given the tools he needs to do it, both in the way God created him and also in the power that God has given him and the affirmation that God's with him. Why didn't he embrace it? And I thought, it's not really hard to understand, is it? I mean... I think I'm the same way. I was thinking back to a time when I was in graduate school the first time. I was in a a graduate counseling program. It was a two-year program. And one of the things we had to do in this counseling program was we had to do these counseling labs. And so you'd have a group of about 10 people, a graduate assistant, and one of the professors would be in this lab. And it was an experiential kind of thing of learning to counsel. Well, we had these every semester, but the last semester kind of after you've had most of your training. The last semester of this lab, you would have to actually meet with real clients and counsel. And these were people who had volunteered to be videotaped while you counseled with them. Or sometimes they would actually meet in the counseling center in a room where there was a two-way mirror and the other side of that mirror, your class would sit. These ten people and graduate assistant and this professor and they would watch the counseling session and listen in on it. So people had agreed to be counseled in this setting. And and so after you would counsel with them in this setting, you would then go to, you know, they would leave and you would all, with your class, you would go to a room and sit around a big table, and they would dissect what you had done in that counseling session. They would just go through it and pull it apart and look at everything you did and why you did it and what you were thinking. And I got to tell you, it was brutal. I was terrified every time I had to do it. And this professor who who was the professor over my lab was the guy that I just really had incredible respect for, the guy had written the books, the guy that was director of the program. I just wanted to impress this guy so much. I had a real hard time when I would sit in those counseling sessions and know that the eyes of my peers and this graduate assistant and this professor were on me the whole time. I had a hard time staying with the person in front of me because I was always aware of those eyes over there. And when we would come into that room again, it was just terrifying to me. I so wanted to be enough to be what they wanted me to be and expected me to be. Didn't want to come up short. I remember one time after one of those labs, we had walked out and this professor I had such respect for pulled me aside. And he was kind of known as the guy that was, he didn't give out compliments easily, he was tough. This was the guy nobody wanted as their lab director. I had him every lab I had in graduate school. And he pulled me aside into his office and I walk in, again, like thinking I'm just going to get a little more critique. And when I walked in there, he said to me something along the line of, I just want you to know how impressed I am with how you're growing as a counselor. I just wanted to pull you aside and say to you, I'm just so impressed with the way you are with people and, and the things you're offering to them. And, and as a matter of fact, I want to say to you, I think you're a real leader in this group. You have an incredibly important role, and I hope that you will continue to take that role on." And I got to tell you, I about melted, you know? I was like, man, the words I'd hoped for, the kind of affirmation I longed for, I finally got it. And I walked out of that office, and within seconds, I started feeling pressure, and I started feeling fear. Within seconds, it was, what did I do to get that? What did I say? I can't remember, what was I doing in the class this time? How do I repeat that? The the bar felt like it went from here to here. And all I felt like was, man, now it's a lot easier to go under the bar than it was before, right? I don't know how to reach it anymore. The expectations feel so high now. If I have to be enough to be that, I wasn't sure I could be this. Now how am I going to be that? It's not hard for me to imagine Saul when this remarkable unbelievably heavy responsibility is being placed on him. That what he feels now is even more fear, more inadequacy, more of a challenge. I have to be something. I don't know I could be who I was. Now I have to be that. It's just too much. I'm sure I'll come up short. Well, the story is actually a pretty good one next. Because if you follow the story, then Saul kind of his first real kingly act is there's a group of Israelites who have been really being harassed up in the northern part of the nation by this neighboring Ammonite king, this guy named Nahash. And Nahash is one evil, cruel guy. This is an ugly guy. This guy, um, he loves to oppress the Israelites, and and he loves after he kind of captures one of them to gouge out their right eye just to publicly humiliate them. So from now on, somehow he feels more powerful if they're walking around maimed by him for the rest of their life. And a group of them has escaped from him and 7,000 of them have kind of gotten together and they're hiding in this one city in Israel and trying to protect themselves and, and Nahash and his army is bearing down on them. And so they send out word to Saul for help. And Saul steps up to the challenge. He sends out a challenge to all the men of Israel to get them to come and fight in his battle. Matter of fact, he, he pretty well threatens them that they better come and fight in this battle and they show up. They show up to fight, and they go out, and God empowers them, and they defeat this horrible king. This king who was going to take these 7,000 Israelites, turn them into slaves, gouge out their eyes, they're freed because of the remarkable leadership of Saul that was empowered by God. Good story. And at the end of the story, The people want to go find all these people who had been questioning Saul's leadership because now they're going, yeah, now that's the king we needed. See, we were right all along. That's the guy we needed. So we're going to get all these doubters and we're going to pull them all together and we're going to kill them because they had no right to question God's choice, Saul. And Saul steps up and says no to that. He doesn't want vengeance to be the story of the day. Saul instead wants the people to turn their attention to the God who accomplished it. He wants the praise and glory to go to God. He doesn't want it distracted with vengeance. Great story. And the people go back to Gilgal with Samuel and they reaffirm Saul as their king. And if the story ended there, it would be a great story. But the next challenge comes, the the one you just heard read this morning. The Philistines, they were the true oppressors. They were the ones who had been causing the most trouble for the Israelites. And so the next story, we come to the Philistine problem. In this story, again, the Philistines have been oppressing them. It's been going on for a long time. Finally, we got our king. Our king has shown himself to be the kind of king who can defend us against our enemies. And now, Saul, it's time to stand up to those Philistines. And the fight starts by his son, Jonathan, attacking a Philistine outpost. And he attacks that outpost, and the fight has begun. And the Philistines then begin to rally their troops. They begin to pull them together. And as you heard in that passage, they were a powerful army, remarkable number of chariots, best of weapons. You know what the Israelites had? They had a bunch of farm tools that they sharpened. That was, those were their weapons. They had the best weapons that the, an army could have. It said that they had soldiers so numerous they looked like the sand on the seashore. This monstrous army is collecting and getting ready to come down upon the Israelites. And the people of Israel looked at it and they said, oh no, and they started scattering. The army started spreading out and running and hiding everywhere. Well, now finally, Saul does what he was told much earlier to do. Finally, we see that Saul's at Gilgal. He's there as he was told to do by Samuel. And remember, he was to wait seven days. And after seven days, Samuel's going to come. And when Samuel comes, Samuel will give the offering. But Saul sees his army all scattering. He's scared, and understandably so. He's scared as the army's scattering. And Saul decides on the seventh day, Samuel's not here. uh Uh-oh, I'm going to make the offering myself. I'll just step in Samuel's place and I'll do it because that'll get God on our side. We need God on our side if we're going to win this thing, right? Matter of fact, probably rally the troops back some. So I'll do what needs to be done to make this thing happen. Instead of trusting Samuel to show up, instead of trusting God to intervene, I need to step in and kind of get things to happen here. I'll fill in for Samuel and take care of his shortcomings. I'll fill in for God and make sure he does what he needs to do. I'll kind of manage the situation and I'll make the offerings. And so he does. Then if you will, turn again to the passage you heard read earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 13. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, we read this. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. That's the question. What have you done? And that's what I want to know. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, those loser guys running off, going every place, and that you did not come at the set time, and sorry Samuel, but where were you? And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, and we all know they're a big problem. I thought, and here's, where he says what he did. Let's set it up. Now let me tell you what I did. Now the Philistines will, I thought, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. What I did was, I of course had to do something. They're all about to come down on me. And I'm just concerned about God's favor on this whole thing. So I did what I had to do. I felt compelled to do it. Now, compare Saul's response to David's response, this king that God raised up after him, who we're told was a man after his own heart. Because those two stories are always an interesting comparison to me. Because you have Saul, and I see his failures, and to be honest, his failures to me look kind of understandable. I go, they don't seem that bad. And then you got David, and his failures look pretty huge, don't they? I mean, you know, commits adultery conspires to have this woman's husband murdered, those seem kind of big compared to I stepped in and made the offering because I was scared. And yet David is allowed to remain king, and his leadership is blessed. Saul is told, it'll be taken out of your hands now because you have failed. I look at those two and say, what's different between them? And one thing I see that's different is when when David is confronted with his sin by the prophet, Here's the response we read in Scripture from David. I have sinned against the Lord. Matter of fact, if you go to the 51st Psalm and you read it, it's a little more expansive discussion of David's confession. And what you hear again and again in that confession is, I failed. I sinned against God. I betrayed that trust. I absolutely did it. True sorrow over his sin. And an understanding that, his, that mercy was now in the hands of his God. It wasn't up to him. Something you see different in Saul Something I kind of understand. There's some justification, and explanation. And when he presents himself, there's really no ownership of a wrong. He did what of course you would have to do in that situation, right? I didn't disobey anything. One clear command he had and the one clear command he didn't follow. Now, you know, it's easy to look at this and say, well, and I've heard this actually said about him. He's just a guy with kind of a bad self-image. What Saul needed was... More self-confidence. That's what he needed. But when you read the story, it's really not what you come away with, is it? I understand that this guy may have had a bad self-image. I can relate to some of that stuff. You know, maybe not feeling so comfortable in his own skin. But it's really not the story. The story wasn't that the corrective is he needs to increase his self-confidence. The corrective here was he needs to increase his confidence in God. He needs to trust him more. Matter of fact, if you think about it, the real problem here was he didn't trust Samuel. And throughout this text, throughout this story, we are told that Samuel is a man that everyone understood has been a faithful servant of God. He's been a faithful messenger. He's followed through what he said. What he has told them that God has said has always been shown to be true. He could be trusted. And even more than that, we're told that he didn't trust God. And, and absolutely, Saul had reason to trust God. He had just experienced God in his life personally. God had brought him a remarkable victory. He's seen that. He had evidence from the history of Israel, had evidence in his own life that God was a trustworthy God. He didn't need to get God to act. He needed to trust God to act. He needed more God confidence. And even beyond that, I would actually say he, he got caught up in kind of what the people of Israel were caught up in. They wanted a leader who would be enough. They wanted a leader who could be so powerful and so strong that he could provide and he could protect and he could be all they need. And Saul seems to get caught up in that misplaced hope. He wants to be the kind of leader that can be enough, that can come through for them and be all they possibly need. He needs to step up now and be the kind of leader. And to do that, he needs to use the resource of God to be the kind of leader that they want him to be and that he now wants to be. Again, the real problem here, I think, is a misplaced hope trying to manage God instead of trusting God. Listen to Saul's response about the real I mean Samuel's response about the real problem in verses 13 through 14. You've done a foolish thing Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. That's the problem, plain and simple. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart instead of the heart of the people a man who's after the heart of God, and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What was the problem again? You have not kept the Lord's command. That's really all you had to do, Saul. You didn't have to be more than you were. You didn't have to step up to that challenge of what they all wanted you to be. You had to trust God. That's all you had to do. And what's interesting in this story that I love is despite Saul's failure and the people of God's failure, God still intervenes still brings them victory in this battle, still protects them. But we are told a little later in chapter 14, verse 52, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. There was victory, but the battle continued much longer than it had to continue because of their lack of faith. Now, if we had time, I'd go to chapter 15, and you'll see a similar, similar story told again. matter of fact, it's one of my favorite stories uh, throughout books of First and Second Samuel. Part of what I like is because I think it kind of justifies a little bit sarcasm. So I kind of read that passage, read chapter 15 today, and find, find the sarcasm in there. I kind of like that. It kind of justifies me being sarcastic sometimes. Um, but a great story was you'll see the same thing. Saul putting blame on everybody else. And when it comes to him, I kind of just did what I had to do, justifying his actions. Not a real ownership that I failed. So how do we apply this to us? How do we take this story and now apply it to us personally? There are several things I think we could talk about. I really just want to draw your attention to three things. First, be careful what you ask for. Because you may actually get it. Be careful what you ask for. See, I think we worship a good God who wants to give us good gifts. And if we ask for those things that are in line with his will that he calls good, God loves to give them to us. He wants to do good for his children. But if we continually to come to him and ask for him what is not good, what actually goes, what we know is against his will, what sometimes even seeks to replace him. I mean, how crazy is it we ask God to help us replace him? And I do it all the time. If we keep coming to Him with those things, because God is a good and loving God, I think sometimes He'll give us those things. Because the only way that we will let loose our grip on them and our demand for them sometimes is to find out how futile those things are. They simply will not live up to the hope that we have in them. God would love to give us the good gifts, the things we truly need. Sometimes He'll let us have what we want. Be careful what you ask for. Sometimes, if the answer is no that you seem to be getting, sometimes we need to keep asking. But always we need to take a look at it and say, is this in line with the will of God, with what he's revealed of himself to me and what he calls me to be? If it's not, maybe I need to start asking some different questions and making some different requests. Second application. I think sometimes our insecurities reveal a demand that's deep within us. We, we always think of insecurity as just a fear, you know, just a, something that, you know, we, we need to kind of think better of ourselves and overcome it. Sometimes maybe our insecurities actually reveal a demand within us, a demand that I somehow be enough, that the resources that I need for life to be what I want to be and what others want me to be have to be in my hand and in my control. I demand it to be so. Sometimes my s- insecurities reveal that I want to be something that I can't be, that I was never meant to be. I demand it and I simply won't let go of it. Um, I think the corrective that again you see in in this story is not that the solution is always just more self-confidence. And I I think there are times self-confidence is appropriate, confidence in the things that are true about us, but sometimes self-confidence isn't the solution. Sometimes, I said before, the real solution is more confidence in our God. Matter of fact, sometimes the real solution is greater humility. And we don't think of humility as being a solution often to a sense of inferiority, do we? But sometimes humility is actually the real solution. A.W. Tozer says this The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He's saying the sense of inferiority um, and humbleness are not really the same thing or meekness. They're not necessarily the same thing. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. To be humble is to see myself as I truly am. Charles Spurgeon says basically the same thing. He says, humility is the proper estimate of oneself. To be humble is to see myself as I truly am. I don't need to be more. I don't see myself as less. I see myself as I truly am. Who does Scripture tell us that we are? We're people created in the image of God. We're not God. We're people created in the image of God. We reflect something of our God, we reflect something of our Creator. And He tells us we've been given remarkable gifts and abilities that we might serve His good purposes. There are things about us that we can celebrate that are good. We're not completely helpless. We have something good to offer to His good purposes. And to treat myself as I have nothing is, is not seeing myself as I truly am. But we're given those good things to serve His good purposes and to build His church. That's, we're given enough to do that. He also tells us that we were created to subdue and to rule over His creation. We have a job to do and we've been given abilities and gifts to do it. But the story also of Scripture tells us that we are dependent people. We were never meant to live independent of our Creator. We are always meant to live in a relationship that is under him and submissive to him and looks to him and depends upon him. Matter of fact, scripture also teaches us that we are interdependent to people, that we are made to depend upon one another. We are made to be part of a community and a church, not to just stand alone, not to have all the resources we need just within ourselves. I tell you how many times, for the things that I feel I need to be and want to be, when I stop and get my eyes off me and look around me, I find that I have all the resources I need. I have other people that help me be a better father and a better husband. I have other people that support me and do this work of me of leading this church. I have other people who help me understand and know scripture. Those resources don't all have to reside just within me. Sometimes I need to look out, and especially I need to look out and say, and I have this remarkable God who is with me, who graciously will use even me to accomplish his good purposes. But finally, we are all, Scripture tells us, we're also a sinful people. We're people in need of redemption and transformation and sanctification. And those things are only possible with someone who is better than us and beyond us. I can't look to all of you to find that. We have to look beyond us to find that. We have to look to our God. I'm sure you're all familiar with this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul here writing about his thorn in the flesh. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take away from me, take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul, you think this has to change in you to be enough? My grace is sufficient. It doesn't have to change. For my power is made perfect in weakness, he says to Paul. Paul then says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. My weakness becomes an opportunity to turn my attention to God's power and to cling to it. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't have to always be enough. We're not designed to be enough by ourselves. We're meant to depend on one another, and we're absolutely meant to depend upon our God. Final application. The path to forgiveness and restoration when we go the wrong direction isn't penance. It's not doing enough to pay off my sins. It's not balancing out the wrongs by doing enough goods that we kind of equaled out the balance. The path to restoration is confession and repentance. It's turning away from my sin and turning back to the one in whom restoration is possible, who can bring restoration. Confession repentance Uh, again familiar passage 1st John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness how does that purification come comes from the hands of God he's the one who does it in us I think sometimes we treat confession as if it's a form of penance confession is something I do to kind of pay the price so that now it's all been paid and now everything will be all right right it's why sometimes people will confess something to you and then they expect you to act a certain way towards them. I did my part. I paid my price. We learned that from a very young age. I, I love the fact I get to tell a grandson story today. I'm going to take advantage of it. So my, uh, my daughter, um, most nights, my um, son-in-law is a teacher. When he gets home, kind of one of their deals is he comes home, watches the two boys for a while, and she gets to go out and go to the gym. So she goes out for about an hour and goes to the gym and then he's home alone with the two boys. Well on this day I think my son-in-law got caught up in something and the boys were playing and he could hear his son in the kitchen playing as he liked to do on the smooth floor with his cars and trucks, thought that's what he was doing. And so my daughter shows up home, comes in the door and opens the door and as soon as she opens the door uh, my two and a half year old grandson runs up to her with something all over his face and hands. And as soon as she opens the door, he says, he runs up and says, I'm sorry, Mama, I'm sorry, Mama, I'm sorry, Mama. Well, at that moment, she realized she had baked a pie just before she left. And that pie was sitting in on the kitchen table. And so they walked into the kitchen, and all over the kitchen floor were remnants of that pie. About two-thirds of it was inside him, but the rest of it was spread all over the floor. Well, even at that age, he knew something. He knew. You know, I'm going to get in trouble for this thing. And the way I can get out of getting in trouble, pay my penance. Run to the door and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now I'm off the hook, right? Now you can't do anything about it. And it actually worked for them. They said they were laughing so hard they didn't do a thing about it. We kind of, we treat uh, forgiveness, I mean, the request for forgiveness sometimes that way. Instead of it really being a sorrow over our sin, an ownership that we have done something that is betrayed the trust of another, or done harm to another, we sometimes, all we look at is how do I get out of the consequences of it? What penance do I need to pay to get out of it? Well, saying I'm sorry is sometimes my penance. I'll humble myself before you, debt is paid, let's move on, right? Really, it's, it's owning the wrong. And it's acknowledging that restoration is in the hands of the one I offended. And I'm asking you for it, I'm hoping for it, but it's, it's in your hands. And I'm acknowledging that. Many times that's not the way we approach our sins is it? And it didn't seem to be the way that Saul eventually began approaching his sin. Scripture tells us that Saul was a man without equal. He was a man that had much good within him, much that could be used by God that God had placed there. He had something to offer, he wasn't a helpless man. He had something good to offer. But the story reminds us again and again, the reason Saul was going to be the king that Israel needed was not because he was enough. He was going to be the king that Israel needed because God chose him, that God was in this. Matter of fact, God provided for him, we're told, that very first, this group of valiant men, that God even changed their hearts. He made them the people that Saul needed to have the support he needed and the strength he needed to do his job. God even provided them. Saul didn't have to be enough by himself. He had to be a part of a community that would do this wonderful work of God. And Saul had to remember that it was God who was doing it through all of them. If he could remember that, Saul was plenty. He didn't have to be more. He simply had to be obedient. That's all he had to be. Um, the The real answer here is we need to admit that we're dependent upon our God. We're not meant to stand alone. The really good news, we have a God who's gracious and who's patient, who loves to do good for his people if we'll simply follow and trust him. To be the pastor I want to be, the father I want to be, the husband I want to be, the counselor I want to be, same thing I need to remember. Don't need to do it all by myself. Don't really need to be more than I am. Need to obey. Need to trust. Don't need to find all those resources just within myself because the resources I need are all around me. are in the hands of my God. Let's pray. Father, often uh, we are an arrogant people as many reminders as we're given that we are not enough by ourselves, Father, so many times we put our trust only in ourselves. Somehow, as, as much as we fail, as much as we come up short, we still want to believe that we could be enough. Father, how thankful I am that I don't have to be, that none of us have to be. How thankful I am that we worship and that we serve you as our God, a God who loves us, who wants to bring us victory and wants to bring us blessing. A God who even sometimes when we face pain will allow us to walk through it for our good. Father, I pray that you would grow our trust in you, grow our faith in you. I pray, Father, that we would remember often that we don't have to handle this alone. In your blessed name, amen.